A joy to worship with you this morning, church family. Thank you, Don and Katie Church, as well as the whole worship team for leading in Pastor Danny's absence. Uh, also, obviously, Pastor Mitchell's not with us this morning. He and I did a little bit of a switcheroo. Um, he had asked that I prepare to preach on July 10th, and in preparing for that sermon, I, I really felt like a word of encouragement was due and was appropriate. Uh, we are going through a time where a lot of us could use some encouragement. Can you believe we passed the two and a half year mark of COVID and we're sick enough of it that some of you are like, oh, please don't even mention it. But the fact is, it's still a reality. It still seemingly randomly can come into our lives and can throw things uh, into turmoil and change our plans for a week or two weeks or a month or even longer. And so it was two weeks ago I had COVID. And so Pastor Mitchell was in the pulpit and then uh, graciously gave me today. Uh, he'll be back with us and starting a new series next week. We are also in a time of economic uncertainty. It has become significant enough that we run across it even in TV commercials. I was watching golf during COVID. What better thing to do? Good way to sleep, right? Um, and there were commercials on about seeing your financial advisor and how many months or how many years do you have to put off your plans? And some folks are thinking, financial plans, I am just trying to make it week to week uh, or month to month. Uh, this, is, this is a difficult time for some of us in that regard. We're going through social turmoil. Probably don't need to go very deeply into that or the political disillusionment that many have experienced. And this has overflowed into other areas of life and some are truly experiencing religious disillusionment during this period of time. It's, it's tough. Uh, and it has been on a grand scale and it has been for many of us in a very personal way. And so I did feel like a word of encouragement is appropriate. But then, uh, kind of following Mitchell's plans for the daily series, saw that he had thought about going into the book of Lamentations to talk about God's daily faithfulness. And what better place to go the book of sadness, the book of despair and mourning, the book of lamentations, uh, to find a word of encouragement. But it is true, because in the midst of all of that despair, the message of lamentations is that while affliction may not ease, the name of the Lord brings hope and confidence and peace of mind. And that is a word of encouragement for us while affliction may not ease, the name of the Lord brings hope and confidence and peace of heart. To really dig into this, it would help us to enter into the situation that kind of leads up to the book of Lamentations, uh, to put ourselves in the shoes of the prophet or the poet. Lamentations is traditionally attributed to Jeremiah, and that may be true, although he's not actually mentioned. And just about any prophet or leader or 
or given the intricacy of the poetry in this book, any skilled poet could have written these words on the behalf of the people of Israel. Uh, but to put ourselves in the shoes of that individual, or really any man, woman, or child who was living during the days in which Lamentations was written, it would help us in our mind's eye to go back to understand what led up to those days. And the first thing that we need to have really as a foundation for our entire worldview is all of the promises that God had given to the people of Israel. You can go back 1,500 years before Lamentations was written and hear God's promises to Abraham as he told that man that simply because of God's grace and goodness, he was going to make Abraham and his descendants into a great nation. God promised to give them a land of promise, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of abundance and a land of blessing that would belong to uh, Abraham's descendants forever. God promised that he would bless them and that they in turn, that nation, would be a blessing for every other nation. Fast forward 500 years. It's hard for us. We have very short memory, very short history as a people. Fast forward 500 years and God is renewing that covenant now to Moses as he tells Moses to lead the people out of slavery and into that land of promise. And there in Moses' last days, as God renews the covenant with the people of Israel, he once again promises that they will come into possession of the land, that they will be a great na uh, nation, that God will establish that nation as his chosen people to be a kingdom and a priesthood through which all the other nations would be blessed if they would remain faithful to him. And then there's a whole list of promises and condemnations if they would not remain faithful. Fast forward another 500 years, and you have David establishing the kingdom that they had been waiting for so long, with Jerusalem as its centers. God giving military victory over all of the surrounding nations so that finally there is peace on every front. Allowing David to build the palace and to lay, lay the plans for the temple where God's dwelling place would be. Promising David an everlasting dynasty that one of his own descendants would sit on a throne and rule and reign forever and ever. These are the promises that formed the worldview of anyone who was living in the day of the book of Lamentations. And they were not empty promises. They were promises that were followed up with actually living out and experiencing the blessings that God had poured out upon the nation. In David's day and Solomon's day, the nation of Israel was the greatest kingdom in the known world. David had, again, defeated enemies on every front 
had established a peaceful and powerful kingdom. Solomon then followed him in increasing the glory of that kingdom, in building up the city of Jerusalem and the other powerful cities within the land, in increasing the army, in expanding the borders such that the rulers of surrounding nations paid tribute on a yearly basis, recognizing Solomon's sovereignty over their own kingdoms. Solomon established trade and commerce with nations near and far, even a fleet of trading vessels that traveled into North Africa, bringing back exotic spices and animals. Solomon had monarchs who would visit from faraway lands to marvel at his wisdom, to marvel at the wonders of the land and at the riches and the glory of that kingdom such that in 1 Kings chapter 10, we read these words. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons, and spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. All descriptions of the glory and power of a nation that was blessed, chosen by God, and established as the center of the known world. This is the heritage of the author of Lamentations. This is the heritage of any individual who had walked the streets of Jerusalem. This is the great hope and the expectation of the people. But also as part of that heritage was a history of squandering of the promises and of the blessings. Idolatry and immorality, part of the history of the nation, even from its very first days, 1,500 years earlier, when Moses had gone up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments and the covenant established, he comes down from the mountains and he finds a people engaged in worshiping two golden calves as idols and engaging in immorality. Even in the day of King David, the greatest king that Israel had known, he was given over to adultery and then to murder. His son Solomon, for all of his wisdom, engaged in prolific polygamy and then in idolatry as he worshipped the gods of the nations of the wives that he had taken for himself. Rehoboam, who through pride brought about the division of the kingdom. Jeroboam, who led the people once again into worship of golden idols. Then the history of the northern kingdom, one evil king after another, kind of personified in Ahab and Jezebel. Or the southern kingdom, yes, there were a few good kings among them, but generally a spiral from Abijam to Manassas to Zedekiah, further and further 
again into unfaithfulness and idolatry such that really just a few pages after 1 Kings chapter 10, we have 2 Kings chapter 24. The Lord sent the nations, Babylonian, Armenian, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders to destroy Judah in accordance with the word of the Lord proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command in order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh and all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. And so we come in the days of the prophet in the days of lamentation to a nation that has experienced loss, devastating loss. All of the splendor had departed from Israel. Nothing was left. After siege and starvation that had actually led to the point of cannibalism, the city was destroyed, the temple torn down, All of the riches and glory taken off, the gates burned, the leaders killed or taken into captivity, and the people exiled. Absolutely nothing was left. The prophet describes national disaster on a scale that had never been seen. Economic devastation as everything ground to a halt a complete collapse of national defense, a total failure on the part of religious and political leadership, and a complete collapse of religious life. Literally everything gone. And it's not random. The prophet says this is the Lord's action. This isn't just some geopolitical, economic disaster. This is God pouring out His wrath on the people. The author describes the Lord's relationship in these chapters as wrath, as God being pitiless towards them, having cut them off. God actively slaying, destroying, and laying waste to the nation. His thesaurus runs out of words as he describes God having forgotten, having withdrawn himself from them, having rejected and abandoned and acting towards them, even this, acting towards them as an enemy. And so the prophet describes himself personally as weeping and tormented in his soul his heart and his eyes having poured out everything, driven away from the presence of the Lord, walking in darkness, besieged and surrounded. This is the loss of a heritage. The loss of an inheritance. The loss of a dream. And we've been there. Each one of us at one point or the other Sometime in our life, we have experienced the loss of a dream, of a future that we'd imagined for ourselves and has not come to be, of blessings that have been taken away, 
perhaps the death of loved ones, the helplessness of joblessness, betrayal on the part of someone whom we have loved or trusted, or a cycle of failure, whether it be in our endeavors or in our relationships or in our personal holiness, the spiral of failure. We've been there. We have experienced disillusionment and discouragement. And it is in, into that situation that we need spoken a word of encouragement. But we're not quite there. The prophet writes this book so that people will look and will make observations, will see and hear what has taken place, and will draw conclusions. And the first conclusion that he draws, the first thing that he says, without equivocation, is we deserve it. He doesn't push this disaster into some uh, historical anomaly he doesn't blame the surrounding nations. He looks squarely at the people of Israel, at the history of the nation, and says, we specifically deserve what we have experienced. He describes in detail Jerusalem's sin, the moral filth both of the leadership and of the people, political and religious leadership and common everyday folks in the street. He talks about rebellion against God's covenant and God's command. Very picturesquely in chapter 1, verse 14, he describes 1,500 years. He doesn't use those numbers, but he describes a history of sin and rebellion as being wrapped up, tied into a bundle, and hung around the neck of the nation as a yoke, a burden of guilt before the Lord. In chapter 2, he says, everything that has happened is a fulfillment of the Lord's Word. God had said all along that privilege brings responsibility and that rebellion and sin has consequences. And what they were experiencing, that devastation was simply a fulfillment of what God had already promised. And of course, we understand that that specific we deserve it of the day of lamentations is also a general we deserve it to every one of us in this room, every one of us who lives in our day. We deserve God's condemnation. We deserve to be cut off. We deserve to be devastated. We deserve to be destroyed. Maybe we don't have two golden calves that we worship as idols, but we have idols in our lives. It can be seen in our relationship to our finances or possessions. Our idolatry of self can be seen in our pursuit of personal pleasure or success above all else. It can be seen in our political affiliations or our personal addictions, our narcissism that we don't just engage in, but wallow in day after day. 
In the Old Testament, we are told that all we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned to our own way. In the New Testament, we are told all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we understand that the wages of that sin is death. So the prophet observes, this is awful and we deserve it. But then, the second thing that he observes, there is hope. There is hope not because of anything that we can do or anything that we can, any way in which we can help ourselves. There is hope because God is faithful. And right in the middle of this awful book, we read the words with which many of you are so familiar, Lamentations chapter 3, starting in verse 21. In the midst of the devastation, the prophet says, yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Amen. The word of encouragement that the prophet has to offer is due entirely to who God is. And that is summed up in this expression, the name of the Lord. Four times in the verses we read and immediately before and immediately after, the prophet calls on the name of the Lord because God's covenant name that he gave to his people is the summation of all of God's perfections and of his loving relationship towards those whom he has chosen. After recalling the glorious and great name of the Lord that is the summary of all of God's perfections and attributes, the prophet then names three particular attributes that serve to give him hope. And the first one is God's covenant love. His love that he promised to Abraham and to Moses and to David and that he even has available to the people in the day of lamentation. God's loyal love. God's love that is faithful even when people are unfaithful to him. At the heart of this love, as one commentator described, is God's generous sense of compassion and grace and mercy. God's love surpasses ordinary human love that comes and goes. God's love surpasses kindness and friendship. Rather, it is the inclination of his heart towards his people to pour out his grace on those whom he has taken for himself. And the prophet knows God's character is unchanging and therefore his love is unchanging. He then goes on to describe God's compassion based on his character, part of who he is, summed up in his name as the Lord, is his compassion that is never taken away and that is renewed every morning. And then he calls upon the faithfulness of the Lord as a source of hope. 
The prophet does not have hope because he necessarily believes that his circumstances are going to get better. He doesn't have hope because he thinks that maybe the leadership will turn things around or the nation will get back on its own two feet. He doesn't have hope because he thinks that he can accomplish something in his own heart or in the hearts of the people. He has hope because God is unchanging. God is unchanging in his holiness. God is unchanging in his mercy, unchanging in his love. God is unchanging in the fact that he punishes sin and must punish sin because he is perfect and holy. And he is unchanging in the fact that he is forgiving towards those who are repentant, always showing his compassion and mercy to those who will turn to him. The unchanging nature of God's name and his character and therefore the hope that the prophet has is tied directly with God's revelation of himself to Moses. Again, a thousand years prior to the book of Lamentations. A situation very similar. In Exodus, we have Moses having gone up on the mountain to receive the covenant and the Ten Commandments. And people in his absence having engaged in idolatry and pagan worship and immorality. And God is ready to destroy the nation. And Moses pleads for God to have mercy. And he bases that plea not in any kind of circumstance, not in any promise, we'll do better, but in God's character. And finally Moses says, show me your glory. The glory of the God who pours out wrath on sin and mercy on the repentant. Show me your glory. And we read in Exodus 34, the Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming the name, the same name in Lamentations 3, the Lord, the Lord. And proclaiming the character of God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in what? Love and faithfulness. The same things we read about a thousand years later were true in Moses' day and are true in our day. The God who maintains love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That same God who punished sin and poured out mercy in Moses' day is the same God of the prophet who wrote the book of Lamentations in the day of devastation of the nation of Israel. Yes, people change. And our attitude towards God changes and our circumstances change and things that are out of our control change. But God never changes. The God of Moses is the God of Jeremiah and is our God. And he is faithful. And we can depend on him. And that is so important in our day. Because we've lost confidence in just about everything else. You can't trust anyone or anything, so it would seem. Gallup organization just released its annual look at Americans' confidence 
in various institutions, and it probably won't surprise you how bad it is. This year's poll in particular marks record new lows in confidence in all three branches of federal government. 25% of Americans express confidence in the Supreme Court, 23% in this presidency. 10% of Americans express confidence in Congress. Five other institutions in our nation are at their lowest point in at least three decades of measurement. 31% of Americans express confidence in the church or organized religion. 16% in the media. 14% in the criminal justice system and big business. And it goes on. Almost all of the institutions that are tracked are at historic lows, and we're going all the way back to Watergate and Vietnam. And average confidence across all institutions is now four points lower than ever before. We're in a time when we feel like we can't trust anything. We can't believe what anybody has to say. We can't know what we can depend on. But in the midst of that such situation, we know heaven and earth might pass away, but God's Word never passes away. From everlasting to everlasting, He is God. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, we can have hope. A third observation that the prophet makes is that the proper response to the situation is confession and repentance and waiting. Here's verses 40 through 42 of Lamentations chapter 3. Let us examine our ways and test them, and let us return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled and you have not forgiven. In these verses, he talks about how good it is to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. He describes a people who ought to sit alone in silence in a position of repentance with faces buried in the dust waiting for God to pour out His mercy. And here's where we get to the great news for us. Because you see, in the prophet's day, he knew that he could trust in God's faithfulness and he could wait for the Lord's compassion. But he didn't really know why. How is it that this God of justice and holiness who pours out his wrath on sinners can be merciful towards me? Well, we have what he didn't have. We have Jesus. That's what this passage in Lamentations means for us more than anything else. Yes, maybe we do deserve the wrath. Yes, maybe God ought to separate himself from us entirely and drive us away from his presence. Yes, maybe he ought to pour down on us all of the condemnation that we deserve, but he won't do it because Jesus took it in our place. When sinless, perfect Jesus went to the cross in our place, all of the wrath 
that Lamentations describes. All of the justice and condemnation was poured out on him. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we could be accepted? Jesus absorbed wrath so that we could receive mercy. Jesus took our punishment so that we could have forgiveness and newness of life and eternal hope in him. This doesn't mean, by the way, that we won't have affliction in our life. We started out talking about the fact that we're living in a pretty tough time. And you know what? Our brother Don leading us in worship reminded us of those around the world who have an even tougher time as they are unable to gather and to worship in freedom. Jesus promised that we will have trouble in this world, that we will experience affliction. But the thing that we can be sure is that we will never experience rejection or wrath because he took that for us. Yes, please note, Sometimes the affliction that we experience is God's corrective action in our lives. But it is not because He has turned away. Rather, it is because He is the God of covenant love. The author of Hebrews reminds us that because God is a loving Father, He will discipline us. And the purpose is not retribution, but rather holiness to fit us for his presence. There's all kinds of reasons that suffering comes into our life. But the first thing that we can know is we have Jesus. And therefore, we have hope, we have peace, we have life. Second, this is for you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you deserve, no matter who you are. There's often someone who will say, that's great. You're talking about peace and hope and mercy. But you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea how often I've failed. You have no idea who I've hurt. I don't deserve it. Well, that might be true. None of us deserve God's mercy and compassion. But all of us can receive it. And the reason is, yes, maybe I don't know who you are. But I know who God is. I know His unchanging character. I know His mercy, His compassion, His covenant love that are renewed every morning in Jesus' name. Yes, I don't know what you've done, but I know what Jesus did on your behalf, on your behalf. That sin, that failure, that hurt, he took entirely upon himself and was punished in your place. And by faith, placing your faith in him, you can receive 
all of the promises and none of the curses. You are accepted because he was rejected. You can live blessing because he took the curse in your place. And the third thing that this means for us is that we can experience his faithfulness daily. The rest of the series has been, in some ways, about the things that we do, the practices and the beliefs of the Christian life. This one is not about anything that we can do. It's about who God is and what He does. And He is faithful to all of His promises. I don't know what promise you might need today because I don't know your circumstances. But Pastor Mitchell actually some time ago prepared a list of some of those promises. Today you might be asking, God, will you answer when I call? Yes, because he's faithful and unchanging in his character. God, will you be my refuge in the face of my enemies? Yes. God, will you make known to me the pathway of life? Yes. Will you be there with me and for me and beside me as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death? Yes. God, does your steadfast love endure every day? Yes. God, what about your promise not to deal with me according to my sins or repay me according to my iniquities? Yes. God, will you sing over me with joy and delight in spite of my brokenness and weakness? Yes. God, will you pour out your Holy Spirit for power, for holiness and service and living? Yes. God, will you really work and orchestrate all things in my life for my ultimate spiritual good to conform me to the image of Christ? Yes. God, will you comfort me in my affliction so that I may be equipped to comfort others? Yes. God, as I pour out my heart to you with thanksgiving, will your peace guard my heart and mind now and forevermore? Yes. God, in my destitution, will you provide for all of my needs according to your glorious riches in Christ? Yes. God, will you actually never leave me or forsake me? Yes. God, is it still your intent to wipe every tear from my eyes and banish sorrow and death? Yes. God, are you coming soon to deliver us from all of this? Yes and amen. The afflictions may not ease, but in the great and glorious and unchanging name of the Lord, we have hope.
and comfort and peace for our hearts and minds because great is His faithfulness. Let's pray. Gracious and loving Heavenly Father, what a blessing to turn to You and even to be able to say those words. How amazing is it that the Almighty Creator of all of the universe who is holy, holy, holy and entirely separate from our sin and entirely removed from any imperfection that You allow us to call You loving and gracious Heavenly Father. And we know it's all because of Jesus. And so we thank You Lord, enable us to cling to those promises and your faithfulness. No matter what turn our circumstances may take, no matter what happens in our society or in our future, to receive your compassion, to accept your love, which are renewed every morning. And Father, we, as a whole church family, we pray this morning for that one or for those who may be saying, but you don't know me. Father, thank you that you know. You know perfectly. You know every dark corner of my heart and mind. You know everything that we have done. And because of Jesus, you love us and you accept us. And so, Lord, we pray that where there has been bondage, you would bring freedom. Where there has been sin and condemnation, that you would bring forgiveness. Where death has been at work, Lord, we pray that you would bring life. In Jesus' name, amen.